Today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11, and 50 through 58. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he raised on the third day in accordance to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain." On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we all shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Author Stephen Covey, he shares his experience on a subway in New York one morning. He says this, People were sitting quietly, some reading newspapers, some lost in thought, some resting with their eyes closed. It was a calm, peaceful scene. Then suddenly, a man and his children entered the subway car. The children were so loud and rambunctious that instantly the whole climate changed. The man sat down next to me and closed his eyes, apparently oblivious to the situation. The children were yelling back and forth, throwing things, even grabbing people's papers. It was very disturbing. And yet, the man sitting next to me did nothing. It was difficult not to feel irritated. I could not believe that he could be so insensitive as to let his children run wild like that and do nothing about it, taking no responsibility at all. It was easy to see that everyone else on the subway felt irritated too. So finally, with what I felt was unusual patience and restraint, I turned to him and said, sir, your children are really disturbing a lot of people. I wonder if you couldn't control them a little more. The man lifted his gaze as if to come to a consciousness of the situation for the first time, and said softly, 
oh, you're right. I guess I should do something about it. We just came from the hospital where their mother died about an hour ago. I don't know what to think, and I guess they don't know how to handle it either. Change of perspective. Stephen Covey goes on to say, suddenly I saw things differently. And because I saw differently, I thought differently. I felt differently. I behaved differently. The resurrection of Jesus Christ brings a change of perspective. Question is how? How does Jesus' resurrection completely change your perspective about everything? First, his resurrection gives you a new perspective on the world. Now, everyone in here has what is called a worldview. And all that simply means is that you have a, a view of the world. It means that you have a view of where the world came from. You have a view of what's wrong with the world. Uh, you have a view of the solution to the problem in the world. And you have a view to where this world is going. Now, you may have not thought through that, but if somebody were to press you with some questions, you would start coming up with some answers. In other words, you do have a, a view of the world, a story of the world, how it fits together. And, and what you think or believe about the resurrection of Jesus Christ flows out of that worldview. Let me explain it this way. There's a lot of people that would, would look at the first century when surrounding Jesus' death and resurrection and say, listen, that was, those were ancient times where people had, a, had a, a view of the supernatural. They believed in the supernatural. And so to them, it was very plausible for a man to bodily come out of the grave. But we live in a different age 2,000 years later. We live in a scientific age and, and, and where it's been proven that, that that just can't happen. There is no such thing as the supernatural. And so Jesus coming bodily out of the grave just didn't happen. It's not plausible. And so there's, there can be this, well, in ancient times, they, they had that, that category for a resurrection, but now today we don't. The reality is that's not true. In the first century, surrounding Jesus' death and resurrection, there were two main, major worldviews, and neither of them had category for a resurrection, like Jesus. You had the, uh, you had the Greeks and the Romans, and they believed that the body was bad, the spirit was good, and that at death, the soul was liberated from the evil body. So the idea of a bodily resurrection to them was, was not good, wasn't a positive thing. Then you had the Jews who believed there would be a general resurrection at the end of time, but they had no category for one man raising before the end of that time. The point is this, they didn't have a category for the resurrection when it happened. As you may not have a category, for the resurrection today, that it's no different. So the question is this then, why did the early Christians believe that Jesus rose from the dead, bodily came out of the grave, if they had no category for it? And the answer is in verses five through eight, 1 Corinthians 15. They had a worldview shift overnight. Thousands of, of Greeks and Romans and Jews literally overnight believed that this man bodily came out of the grave. Overnight, worldview shifts. 
And Paul describing it here says that Jesus appeared to a combination of individuals and then he appeared to groups of people. In fact, in verse six, we read that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive today at the time this letter was written. Now, what's the significance of that? Why does Paul provide that detail? Because if there were most of those 500 people still alive when Paul wrote this letter, which was about 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, and they were still alive, that if it didn't happen, if it weren't true, then this, this never would have circulated. It would have been refuted. But no, those most of 500 people were alive still, and they read it, and they went, amen, yes. <laughs> we saw him. We saw him. He appeared to us. We touched him. They had a worldview shift overnight, and it absolutely shattered their old perspective and gave them a brand new perspective, one that explains the rapid rise of Christianity, of early Christianity, and that explains why they were so different from the world around them. In fact, there were, of those early Christians in this, this period, there were three major differences or significant differences between them and those around them. When, when epidemics would hit cities in the Roman Empire, uh, people would flee. But the, the early Christians would stick around and they would help the sick and they would tend to the sick and they would contract and be infected themselves and many times they would die. They had, they had no, this, this, no fear of death. And when they were persecuted, when they would, when they would suffer for their faith, they didn't reply or respond with terror. They, they prayed for their enemies. They had this, this remarkable ability to forgive. And then in the Roman Empire, they had conquered all the, the countries around and they had opened up the borders so that it was all free flowing, which means there were cities that had people from all different nations. It was a multi-ethnic situation, but it was segregated. The early Christians were incredibly inclusive of all races. There wasn't a pecking order. There wasn't segregation. And so the churches represented all these nations and it set them apart. And the reason they were different is because they believed something about the future that informed how they were living in the present. Namely, that Jesus had risen from the dead, that he was alive, and that he was coming back to renew the world. And that, that, that belief in the future of the resurrected Jesus alive and coming back completely transformed and shaped their present. You know, I think we, we underestimate the degree to which we are shaped now by what we believe about the future. Let me give you an example of this. Imagine uh, two women working the same menial job for the same difficult boss in the same poor working conditions. And one woman is promised $15,000 after she completes one year of work, of this work. The other woman is promised $15 million after she completes this one same one year of work. Now, you can imagine, which woman's gonna work very differently in the present, right? The one that's promised $15 million will, will work very different in the present, but it has nothing to do with her present conditions, does it? It has to do with what's been promised. In the same way, the resurrection of Jesus changes your perspective 
And it gives you a promise of the future of what Jesus' resurrection speaks to that changes your perspective today and shapes the way you actually live today. How? Well, let's go to the second point. How does Jesus' resurrection completely change your perspective on everything? Right? It changes your perspective on the world. It gives you a completely new worldview. Second, it gives you a new perspective on death. Look at verse 55. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Now, the word sting here, it means a, a poisonous sting. Like a scorpion bite would be poisonous and, and lethal, but in the scorpion bite, the bite's not what gets you, right? It's the poison in the bite. What Paul's saying here is that it's the poison in death. It's the poison of death that gets you. What is that poison? It's the law. It's God's law. It's his commandments. You know, every one of us is deep down to varying degrees, deeply aware of our insufficiency, deeply aware of not measuring up, deeply aware of not living right to God's commandments, to God's law. And that produces a fear. It produces a fear of judgment. The only way that you can get away from that is if you believe or convince yourself that, that death equals annihilation, meaning that at death, you cease to exist. Right? If that were true, if at death you cease to exist, the sting of God's law wouldn't be there. It, it wouldn't matter. In fact, earlier in the chapter, Paul says in verse 32, if the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Right? So if you cease to exist at death, then make the most out of your 70 to 80 years or whatever you're given, right? But we can't be sure of that. In fact, I mean, just look at our, look at our culture. Look at the movies, the books, the shows that are produced about life after death. There's this fascination with it. Why? Because there is life after death. The scriptures speak to it. And if that's true, if death, if death doesn't equal non-existence, but it means there's a future, then there is a fear of judgment because deep down we all know that we haven't lived up to God's law and his commandments. Jesus' resurrection takes away this poison. It takes away the sting. Jesus' resurrection is the assurance that he has paid for your sin in full, that he paid the debt of sin in full. And so the sting is taken away. This is what Paul's talking about earlier in the chapter in verse 17. He says, if Christ hasn't raised from the dead, then you're still in your sin. If, if Christ hasn't raised, there is no forgiveness. You're still stuck in your sin, but he has raised and he's the assurance that your sin has been paid for. If you shop at Costco and you're anything like me, uh, there's something frustrating that happens when you're about to walk out the building. It's time consuming, it's frustrating, and what is it? They check your receipt. If it's a busy day, you, you stay in line a long time before your receipt gets checked and you leave. Now, I probably shouldn't be so frustrated. I should be thankful, right? Because that keeps shoplifting down and drives the prices down and benefits me. I should be thankful. 
I'm typically not, especially when you have kids. And I think Costco's figured this out, right? What do they do if you have a bunch of kids with you? They put a nice smiley face on your receipt and they give it to your kids, right? They draw a picture for your kids. All right, I digress. The point is this. <laughs> the point is this. When I leave Costco, I give that checker my receipt. And that is proof that I have paid for the merchandise in my cart and that I don't leave in debt to Costco. Jesus' resurrection is like the cosmic receipt that says it's been paid for in full. Jesus took judgment for you. He took all of it for you. So that as you approach death, right, which we all approach every day, we don't know when our last day is, we don't approach it with fear of judgment because the sting of the law is gone. The poison has been taken away by Jesus' resurrection. So how does Jesus' resurrection change your perspective on everything? It changes your perspective on the world. It changes your perspective on death. Third, changes your perspective on life. If you look at uh, verses 50 to 54, you'll see a phrase repeated there three times. It says, the perishable body must put on the imperishable. Now, this is describing, verse 52, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. This is describing when the resurrected Jesus returns to renew everything. And what it says is that when that happens, that the, the perishable, notice what it doesn't say. The perishable doesn't put on the immaterial. I have a friend, right? Now let me just explain before I tell that story. Uh, the idea here is that I think generally as a, as a cultural stereotype, when, when you talk about heaven, the thought is um, disembodied spirits. We float on the clouds in the presence of Jesus. I have a friend who, who said he grew up hearing that. That was kind of basically what was taught, that heaven was just when we'd go up and, as a spirit and float around and be in the presence of Jesus. And he, he said, that wasn't all that attractive to me. I couldn't get very excited about that. And it didn't make sense that if God created a physical world and gave me a physical body, why would heaven suddenly be no physical, just this immaterial existence? The answer is it's not. It says the, the perishable puts on the imperishable, which means when Jesus, the resurrected Jesus returns, that you're gonna get a better physical body you could argue that you'll be more physical in the new heavens and the new earth, that you'll receive a glorified body like Jesus, one that, that is not susceptible to sickness and disease and cancer and illness, a body that's perfect, and that the new heavens and the new earth will be a physical place like the garden in Genesis 1 and 2, right? This beautiful garden, except impervious to sin forever. And so perishable to imperishable means that we are going to receive a glorified, better physical body, that this earth and everything will be renewed, no more sin, darkness, destruction. It'll be as God intended it. Martin Luther, he 
He was a theologian and a priest in the 1500s. And he was asked this question. He was asked, if you knew the resurrected Jesus was coming back tomorrow, what would you do? And he said, I would plant a tree. Now, that's an odd answer, but really insightful, right? That the resurrected Jesus is gonna come back and renew this entire earth and this entire world. Renew our bodies as they were always intended to be. Now you say, that, that's great. A glorious future, a beautiful future, that's great. But what does that mean for me today? Because things aren't so glorious today. Things aren't so glorious. What, what about my pain and suffering and hardship today? Do I just have to wait and just wait for that day that comes when things will be perfect? Does, does my pain and suffering and hardship just get thrown away? Is resurrection, uh, is it just a consolation for suffering that one day in the new heavens and the new earth, I'll just be kind of comforted for all the tragedy and the loss and the pain I experienced on the earth? The answer is no. No, look at the end of verse 54. It says, it says death is swallowed up in victory. Now, death here doesn't just mean, it doesn't just mean when you stop breathing. Death means all the corruption that entered the world after Genesis 3 that has caused our bodies to one day die. We weren't made to die. That's because of Genesis 3 and sin entering the world. But, but death means all the sickness, the suffering, the aging, the deterioration of the body, bad backs, bad hearts, bad cancer, everything. And what it says here is that death is swallowed up in victory. See, resurrection doesn't just remove suffering, it swallows it. I want you to think if you have a, a nice, freshly baked chocolate cake on your table at your house, maybe some of you this afternoon at Easter dinner or we'll have something, some equivalent, it's sitting there on your table. How do you get rid of that? You've got two choices. You either throw it away or you eat it, you swallow it. When Jesus hung on the cross, he swallowed suffering. He ate it, all of it, all the evil, all the brokenness, all the suffering in such a way that he swallowed it. And when he rose from the dead, his body, his glorified body still bore the marks. You remember Thomas, right? The, the, the nail marks were still in his hands. He, he still had the spear scar on his side. And those scars, which on the cross were a source of incredible pain and sorrow, now in his resurrected body were, were marks of joy and victory. And what that means is that your pain and your hardship and your sorrow is not thrown away. It's not wasted. That the, that the pain you experience on this earth will somehow enhance and make greater the joy of eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. We have a number of people in our congregation, Don prayed for them, who are currently suffering between disease, 
uh, between cancer, between bad hearts. One of those uh, is our beloved Carly Naramore. And she's actually gone through both. 10 years ago, she had uh, breast cancer. And all of the chemotherapy that, re that she received ended up weakening her heart to the point now that her heart is failing and she is sitting in Mayo Clinic this morning awaiting a heart transplant. She's in her mid-40s. Last Sunday when I visited her, she said, as we were talking about what she's going through with Joe and the family, she said, if this was in vain, this would be really hard. She said, if there, if there were no purpose to this, this would be really hard. But resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus promises that it is not in vain. That somehow the pain and suffering that we go through in this life will enhance the joy that we have in eternal life with Jesus. And so the resurrection of Jesus gives us an absolutely new perspective on life, the life we'll have and the life we go through now. And then fourth, how does Jesus' resurrection change your perspective on everything? New perspective on the world, on death, on life, and finally on work. Look at verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, this is the conclusion to the entire chapter where he talks about the resurrection. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, what is, that, what is this work that Paul's talking about, the work of the Lord? Certainly, he's talking to this Corinthian church about how they love one another, uh, how they take care of one another, how they, uh, how they love their neighbors, how they teach the scriptures, how they live out the scriptures, that he, that's all part of it, but he's also talking about what they do 40 hours a week, a vocation to make a living. You know, we often think about heaven as uh, almost the, the eternal retirement, right? That we'll, you know, we'll sit on a sandy beach with a lemonade and an umbrella and finally not have to work. Listen, work's not the problem. Sin is the problem. Work in Genesis 1 and 2 for Adam and Eve was incredible. They loved it. It was joyful. Sin enters the world in Genesis 3, and suddenly work becomes exhausting, tiring, fruitless, seemingly pointless at times. And that's where you and I live today in our work. But the resurrection of Jesus promises that when, when he rose from the dead, that was the dawn of the new world. That was the dawn of the new creation. The dawn of the first new body, right? 1 Corinthians 15 earlier talks about Jesus' bodily resurrection as first fruits, meaning that he was the first to have a new glorified body and it was the first of many, all those in Christ one day will receive a body like his. You know, one day God is gonna do for the entire world what he did for Jesus on Easter. And so, so work falls in between where what we do 40 hours a week is not in vain. There's not a divide between the spiritual and the secular. It is all one. 
The work you do has great intention and great purpose. Now you may feel like it's purposeless. You may feel like it's in vain because of certain bosses and certain working conditions and maybe a company structure, whatever it may be. But the resurrection of Jesus says, no, no, what you do has purpose, that the work you do has purpose, that we are working to usher in this new world that has already dawned at the resurrection and that will be completed when Jesus returns. William Breitbart, he's a psychiatrist and he is uh, the department chair at a cancer center in New York. And he spent a, a career specializing in end of life, terminally ill cancer patients. And for much of his career, he's been dealing with suffering people who have just wanted to die. And, and he said this, he says, when I, when I walk in the room, my patients will say, I only have three months to live. If that's all I have, I see no value or purpose to living. He had an IBM, a former IBM executive patient that he was dealing with who had colon cancer. And, and this former exec said this, everybody said how important it is to have a positive attitude, but I'm not Lance Armstrong. I wanna jump in the grave. If death means non-existence, Breitbart's patients reasoned, then what meaning could life possibly have? And if life has no meaning, there's no point of suffering through cancer. Then he goes on to describe in the mid-90s when the physician-assisted suicide started to really become a hot topic and he had to deal with it. And it made him start to wonder what, what is going through the mind of a patient right, who is, who is asking him for a prescription basically to end their life. He wanted to know what's, what's going on. And his assumption was that they just wanted to, that their life was so terribly painful, they just wanted to escape the pain. But he found out something very opposite, that almost every patient that he asked, the reason why they wanted to end their lives is that they had completely lost any sense of meaning or purpose. And he went on to say this. He knew he could treat depression with drugs or therapy, but he was stumped when it came to treating meaninglessness. He said, what I suddenly discovered was the importance of meaning, the search for meaning, the need to create meaning, the, the ability to experience meaning was a basic motivating force of human behavior. He said, we were not taught this stuff at medical school, exclamation point. The point is this, that if you attach your purpose, your meaning, your very existence to anything but the resurrected Jesus, then eventually that, that person, that thing, that idea will fail you. That only in a, in a relationship with the resurrected Jesus will you find meaning and purpose that transcends everything that you experience in this broken world. And so my question to you is this. Will you allow the resurrected Jesus to shatter your categories? Maybe for those of you that don't have a category for a bodily resurrection of Jesus, will you, like those early Christians who had no category for it, 
but saw the risen Lord and suddenly their entire perspective was shattered and changed and they were made new. Will you invite the resurrected Jesus to shatter your categories? To shatter your categories and to, and to give you a new perspective and new life. A new perspective on the world. A new perspective on death. A new perspective on your very life and a new perspective on your work. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the promise that your son Jesus has risen, that he's alive, that he's at your right hand. Father, I pray for those that are here that maybe don't have a category for resurrection or have some sort of worldview or, or picture of the world that, that won't allow it to even be plausible, that you by your spirit would shatter that, just like you did for those early Christians the women that showed up at the tomb, the disciples, the 500, that they saw the risen Jesus and they couldn't deny it. And that it caused them to be different. They didn't fear death. They had a remarkable ability to forgive. They were inclusive of all races. That Father, you would, by your resurrection, shatter our old categories and give us a new perspective, give us new life. Father, I pray that everyone here would bow the knee to your son, Jesus, who is alive and who is returning one day soon to renew all things. That Father, as we close in worship now and sing to you about the victory that is ours in Jesus, would you fill our hearts and flood our hearts with the hope and the victory of the resurrection? And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.